here to contrast the life of the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, Albert Barnes gives what I think is a good summary of the psalm when he says, a righteous life will be attended with prosperity and happiness, and that life and the life of the wicked will be followed by sorrow and ruin. And this is most certainly true in the ultimate sense, right? Um, One day the righteous, or those who are in Christ, will be forever prosperous and happy in heaven, and the wicked will be in eternal sorrow and ruin in hell. But I think it's also generally true um, in that God has set up his world to work in a certain way. When we walk in righteousness, so when we're walking in obedience to God's commands, generally speaking, good things come. That's how he set up his world to work. And when we walk in unrighteousness, bad things follow. You reap what you sow, right? Um, sometimes it can take a little while for that, that, uh, that's, uh, what, for that to catch up to you. Um, but it will. And then second uh, in this passage, just to be clear, this passage is one that is easily applicable to all people at all times. It's not a specific promise given to Israel or anything like that. It's not written for just a certain time or season. Um, It was not written to just men, even though it says blessed is the man, okay? Um, It is written for everyone. It is written for you. The things that we're going to read and we're going to look at in this psalm today are for you, church. And lastly, this psalm is describing not a, uh, just a blessed or a happy man per se, but a righteous man. The psalm is describing a, a righteous man. It's describing the blessedness or happiness of being righteous. And so as we dive in, the first line there uh, says, blessed is the man can be translated literally as happy is the man. Okay, happy is the man. And if we jump ahead just a little bit and and you look at verse 3, it says he is like a tree planted by streams of water there, right? Um, We see more of what the righteous man is like. He is blessed, he's happy, and he's like that tree planted by streams of water. A tree that yields its fruit in season at the right time, and a tree whose leaves do not wither because it is well fed with what it needs. All the righteous man does prospers. But the wicked, it says, they are not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away, and their way leads to perishing, not prospering. Um, They will, in fact, wither, and if they yield fruit, it will be rotten fruit. So if I were to ask everyone here, which you would rather be, the righteous or the wicked, it'd be a pretty unanimous yes, right? Yeah, yeah okay, you, you don't want to be the wicked, you want to be the righteous. Everyone here wants to be the righteous, blessed, and happy man. Yes? Yes? You with me? Some of you are with me. Okay. Um, I certainly do, but you know, it doesn't just happen, okay? It doesn't just happen. Um, we are sinful by nature, and we will naturally walk in that way, the, the way of the wicked. The righteous man described and contrasted here, um, and this is important to note, the psalm is not talking about necessarily the righteousness imparted to us by Jesus, okay? This is, uh, when we're born again, right, we receive the righteousness of Jesus. God looks at us and sees not our sins, but he sees Jesus and his righteousness, and that is an awesome gift, and it's a gift we need to have if we want to be able to walk in righteousness. 
But this gift is not what is being described here in this psalm. Um, What we have here is actually the characteristics or lifestyle of a righteous person, okay? So we see the description of the character of a righteous person in Psalm 1, both negatively and positively. It's not the description of a perfect person, but of one who is characterized as one who walks a righteous life. Does that make sense? So, also, just to be clear, um, it doesn't say anything here about the righteous man being rich, problem-free, or healthy, okay? It, It doesn't. To pursue God and walk in righteousness does not promise us those things. Many people will take something like this and say, the righteous man is, is happy, um, or that he prospers in all that he does to say that he's going to be healthy and wealthy. And that, that's not what Scripture is saying here. Real joy and happiness is not tied to physical wealth and health, church. Walking in obedience to God's commands and finding joy in His presence, um, as we see here, that's what we want to do. It leads to prospering and real fruit, which will always be spiritual and will, like I said, many times work out physically as God sees fit. So, coming back to the question, you all want to be the righteous man, right? Righteous woman. Um, Someone who's blessed and happy, like a tree planted by streams of water bearing fruit. Um, That's what we want to be. But if you're anything like me, there's probably times in your life where you don't feel like you fit this description of the tree planted by streams of water, right? You don't, you don't feel like that, that's the case. You don't feel like you're prospering. Maybe you feel like you're withering instead. Um, so how do we break out of that? If, you, if, you, if, you're, if you're not prospering, if you feel like you're withering, how do we break out of that? How do we become the man described here? That's what, that's what we want to talk about this morning. So first, in Psalm 1, we come to three characteristics um, that are described in a, a negative way. The blessed, righteous man, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. What does this mean? So one by one here, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. First, the word walk is often used in Scripture to denote a way of life or conduct, with life represented as a journey and man as a traveler, okay? So, you're traveling down uh, this journey of life. And so the way of life is talking about what is characteristic of this righteous man. How does, how does he walk? Um, and so characteristic of him is that he does not seek the advice or the wisdom of the wicked. And he does not put into practice or embrace the wisdom the wicked have. So I think for most of us, we have no problem saying we don't want to take the advice or the counsel of wicked men, right? No, nobody in here would say, oh yeah, I want, I want to take the advice or the counsel of wicked men. Um, and so in one sense, we could say we're not really in danger of that, but I think in another sense, we, we are in great danger of this um, because we don't always have the same idea of what is wicked that God does. Um, so what does wicked really mean? It's an important question. Because I think we tend to, when we hear the word wicked, we, we tend to think of like, you know, somebody like Hitler, you know, a really bad, really evil person. Um, but where's the line? Okay, if, if we don't want to take the counsel of wicked, the wicked, we want to know where that line is and what we're talking about. 
So who is bad, who is evil, who is wicked, and who is good? And is there something in between? Um, so if someone is not getting their wisdom from God, I would propose, uh, and they're getting it, they're getting it elsewhere, right? Where are they getting it from? Um, it is true that sometimes people who are not seeking God will uncover nuggets of truth and wisdom, right? Because it's out there in nature. God has a general blessing he has given everyone in the, in the ability to discover and learn. But there is no real wisdom or knowledge apart from God. So someone may study a particular science or field and gain a lot of knowledge in a particular subject. But wisdom is how to use and apply that knowledge. True wisdom, as Pastor Mike uh, said a couple months ago, is the art of godly living. True wisdom is the art of godly living. So if we seek wisdom or counsel from those who do not know God, those who are not walking in righteousness themselves and obedience to God's commands, at best, we're getting a, a malformed piece of knowledge or wisdom. Um, we are getting something incomplete as the person is missing the most important part of the picture. Um, ultimately, we're all wicked in the sight of God apart from Jesus, right? Um, it is because of him that we are now saints and not sinners. But again, we're talking more conduct or character here. Um, those whose conduct and character are in line with God's commands versus those who are not. For to disobey God's commands is wickedness. And so, this is where I think the danger lies for Christians. We look for wisdom, counsel, advice, a lot of times, from people who are not believers on all sorts of different subjects. We look for it from people who do not honor God and do not keep His commandments, those who are not righteous but are wicked. And we end up talking to psychologists and counselors who put more stock in their craft and in science than in God's Word and trust experts in various fields when those experts do not honor God and His Word. And they can be well-studied, and they can have a lot of knowledge, but if they're leaving God out of the picture, again, they're missing the most important part of the equation. They may have the knowledge, but they're lacking wisdom uh, for their, to filter their information if they don't have God. So, we're tempted, as believers, to listen to the news and trust what they have to say, although I think for a lot of us, the news now, we don't consider it a trustworthy source, right? Um, but we may be tempted there, may be tempted to listen to the government and trust what they have to say, or to listen to professors and teachers and take their advice and counsel. We listen to bloggers and podcasters and TikTokers and all sorts of other people that are offering their advice and wisdom. And a lot of the wisdom is just the wisdom of the world, church. It's the wisdom of the world. Um, truthfully, we often end up looking for what our itching ears want to hear. And when we hear it, oh, that sounds good. I like that. We find something we connect with emotionally that backs up what we were already thinking or feeling. And often those are from sources that are not righteous, right? And I'm not saying, hear me on this, I'm not saying that people can't, again, gain knowledge. Like, there are super smart people out there and scientists who who know way more than me on a large number of subjects. Um, but everybody has a worldview, right? And if you don't believe in God, you're going to filter it through that way. And so then when you offer your knowledge out to people in the form of advice and wisdom, 
and it's lacking God, it's, it's, it's going to come out and it's not going to be real wisdom. Um, so take heed, my friends, and be extremely careful where you get your, your knowledge, your wisdom, your counsel from. More often than not, I think we fall prey to the wisdom of the wicked. May this not be so, church. This is the first item listed here, and I think one that we are in the most danger of. It's everywhere. You might not even realize it. If you watch movies, if you're on social media, if you're on your phone, constantly pouring wisdom out to you. Counsel. But it's, it's not the wisdom of God. It's not the counsel of God. It is influencing you the other way. And if we fall into that, we put ourselves in the great danger of the second thing listed here, standing in the way of sinners. Um, this seems to be a deliberate decision here to put yourself in the place where sinners go. Not as a means to reach out to them and witness to them, because that's something we're certainly called to do. Um, it's putting yourself in the places they would be because you desire to be with them or to maybe walk in the way that they are walking. In the first line, you see that a righteous person does not listen to the counsel or wisdom of the wicked, um, but if someone does, if they start to do that, if you start to do that, often you'll be moved into putting yourselves in those places and situations where you're with those sinners more and more, and you're influenced by them more and more, and then you start joining in them in the things that they're doing and believing. Um, 1 Corinthians 15 1 Corinthians 15 says, bad company corrupts good character. Okay? The people that you choose to hang out with influence you, and they lead you slowly into their ways. And the way that they're going to lead you in is the way of death. The road to life is a narrow one, and it doesn't take much to get off of it. A few little ideas can lead to huge consequences. If you need to walk due north for 100 miles to get to your destination and you turn just two degrees off course, you'll end up in a very different place by the time you've gone those 100 miles. Um, when we start taking the wisdom and we start hanging out and we start walking down that road, it does not take long for us to get way off the mark. And then the last uh, thing we saw here in verse 1, it says, uh, sitting in the seat of the scoffers. The sitting implies an even more deliberate act here, okay? One who has, in a sense, joined in and gone to be with them. Um, he's not running into them or placing himself in the way where he might be caught up, but he's, he's now deliberately placing himself with the wicked, and he's established a residence among them. So the seat brings up a picture of how people would have assembled at that time in a room, kind of gathered together, and then it says, they're with scoffers, right? People who would be mocking, deriding, treating God with scorn and contempt. Um, we as believers should not be joining in with them. We should not be joining that. But you see it happen. If you, if you look out, you will see this happen. Where at the very least, on hot topic issues in our culture, certain Christians will jump in with the scoffers and the mockers and will judge with them the church. You'll see some big-name pastors and theologians jump in with the world, offering judgment on the church on a lot of these cultural issues, and that is utter wickedness. Sometimes the church needs a rebuke or a correction, amen? 
oftentimes even. But the righteous man does not join in with the wicked in rebuking the body of Christ. He does not sit with them and point out the flaws of the church and point fingers at the church. Be careful if you find yourself sitting in a group of people who are speaking poorly of the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. The damage you can do to both yourself and the ones Jesus loves and died for is huge. But be especially careful that you do not find yourself sitting in this seat of scoffers, joining in with the unrighteous in blasting the church. The church has a lot of issues, and they need to be dealt with. And they should be dealt with by pastors and shepherds and members speaking to the church, not joining in with the wicked and heaping on insults. And finally, uh, be wary, because you might think, I would never do that, I will never get there, but you aren't far off if you slide into that first category or two. If you take the advice or counsel of the world, before long you're going to be placing yourself in, in ways where you're going to get more of it and more of it around them, hanging out with them. And before long, uh, you're going to be sitting in that seat, deconstructed and far away from Christ. And once you reach that point, you're so far down the road, you're even going to think you're doing really well. You have walked down the road of the wicked and not the road of the righteous. So those are the things the righteous man does not do, right? He does not do those things, which means those are the things um, we don't want to do, right, church? We don't want to do those things. So what should we be positively doing then? Verse 2 of Psalm 1 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The delight of the righteous man, the happiness and the joy of the righteous man is not found in the same things as the wicked. It's not found in material possessions. It's not found in worldly success. His happiness and his joy is found in God, in the truth of God that we find in his word. Church, God's word is not something that is distasteful to this man. Though sometimes it may pierce him. And I think if you've studied the word long enough, you've been a believer long enough, you have felt pierced by God's word, right? You have been offended by it. But he knows it is for his own good that he is pierced. The righteous man delights in it and desires it more and more to know God more and more. To have his truths impressed more and more onto his heart. The law of the Lord here says uh, that he delights in, he meditates on, would have applied to all the books in the Old Testament written so far. It's referring to the written revelation of the will of God. So it's referring to the Bible, okay? So when it says the law of the Lord, we're talking about God's word, just to be clear. Um, But this line, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Did any of you feel just a little twinge of conviction when I read that line? Can you say that you delight in God's word? That you delight in it? I certainly don't think I do nearly enough. I I was convicted reading this song, studying the psalm, and getting ready to preach from this psalm. I want to truly be able to say that my pleasure and my happiness is firmly planted in God's word all the time. May godly sorrow fall upon our hearts this morning if we are not delighting in God's word. May it move us to repentance.
May we treasure God's word. And how is one way that we can do that? The righteous man, it says, meditates on God's word day and night. He delights in it so much that he meditates on it. But I would say also that the act of meditating upon it causes delight in God's word. Okay? It causes delight in God and delight in his word. So if you truly delight in God and his word, church, you will meditate upon it. And uh, what do you do if you realize you do not delight in God and his word? Well, first, you cry out in repentance and ask for help, right? Like, Lord, help me. Like, I don't delight in your word like I should. And then you go and meditate upon it. Okay, you, you meditate upon it. And as you do, you're going to start to delight in it as you find that it is good. Um, I'm going to turn over to Psalm 63 here. We'll read uh, the first few verses. Come grab this nice ice water that the Bruns always make sure is up here. Thank you. Psalm 63. It says, O God, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. And so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. So when shall your soul be satisfied as with fat and rich foods? Which, by the way, the fat is the best part of the, the meat and stuff when you're smoking, right? So it's, it's the good stuff. When will your mouth praise God with joyful lips? It says, when you meditate upon him in the watches of the night. When you meditate upon him in the watches of the night. And, and how do we know about God? We know from his word. We meditate on him and what he has spoken to us in the Bible. It is like the richest of foods. And if you don't delight in him and his word, meditate on it, and, and that will come. That will come when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now, when I say meditate upon God's word, what do I mean? Okay, when you... When you hear the word meditate, some of you might imagine somebody sitting with their legs crossed, okay? I picture Mike Smith doing his little pelican pose thing he does, and, uh, you know, somebody going, um, okay, that's, that's not what I'm talking about. If you were to go to dictionary.com, which is not normally where I'd suggest you to get most of your definitions, but um, if you were to look there, it says to think deeply or focus one's mind for a period of time to think deeply or carefully about something. And that's what we want to do with God's Word, right? We want, to, we want to think deeply or carefully about it. And so if we go with that definition, though, of, of meditation, we can meditate on all sorts of things, right? We can meditate on lots of things. Sometimes even unintentionally we're meditating upon things. Do you ever find yourself dwelling on something and thinking about that same thing over and over and over 
a lot of times it's like things we're anxious about. And, and why does it get worse, our anxiety? Because we're, we're meditating on this thing we're worrying about instead of on God's word. Um, and, and meditating and worrying about your problems will not help you. But meditation is an awesome thing. God has designed us with this capacity, church. He gave us the mind and soul and the ability to pause and ponder something. He doesn't want us to just hear him and move on, as in, I read a scripture, and then I just moved on. He wants us to hear him and stop and think about what we heard. Because too often, we read our Bibles, and we just read past a ton of stuff that God has for us, because we don't stop to think about it. Okay, so take a moment this week, this month, when you're in God's Word, take a long moment and meditate and ponder what you have read. Consider what God has said and let it work into your heart instead of just moving past it. What we choose to ponder and meditate upon will shape our hearts and our lives. If you think and ponder over football, basketball, sports, and stuff all the time, okay, that's going to come out in your conversations and your life and, and how you decide to live. If you're always thinking about and analyzing your job or your house, something like that that you want, you start to shape your actions and your life around that. And if you meditate upon something sinful, are you not often led into sin? We can use the wonderful gift that God gave us to lead us into sin, or we can use it to help us walk in righteousness and goodness and joy. In Matthew 12, 35, Jesus says that the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, while the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. If you're meditating on good things all the time, God's word, you're going to bring good things out. And if you meditate on things that are not good, you're going to bring that out. So what do we want to meditate on? Of course, God's word, right? Scripture. Donald Whitney defines meditation in the biblical context as deep thinking on the truths and spiritual realities revealed in Scripture for the purposes of understanding, application, and prayer. The modern meditation goal is often to empty your mind. This is not so with Christian meditation, okay? We want to, of course, throw out junk that might be sitting in there, but we want to fill our minds, church, when we meditate. We want to fill our minds with biblical and theological substance. Truth that is not within ourselves, but is that from outside of ourselves. And then we think and ponder deeply on those things. We want, as Colossians 3.16 says, for the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. So meditating on Scripture helps us understand it helps it bring it to our heart, and it helps us to pray. Church, if, if you're struggling with praying, meditate on God's Word. Many Puritans, old dead guys, um, would say that meditation is the missing link between Bible intake and prayer. It bridges the gap between hearing from God and speaking to God. So when we meditate on the Scriptures, we start to know what and how to pray, and it helps us walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When you get out your Bible, church, you are not alone. If you have received Christ, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, and when you meditate on Scripture and try to understand as you sit there, you're not doing it by yourself. 
the Holy Spirit can help give you understanding and insight. Um, and as that happens, as you're meditating, you should be thinking not only like what does this mean, but what does it mean for me? And listen to me when I say this. Scripture is not subjective. Okay, it is not subjective. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean something to some people and different things to other people. God meant by it what he meant. He meant what he said. And as we understand what he has said, though, the application of that truth can work its way out in different ways in our lives. So when we meditate on Scripture, and we try to understand what it means, we want to know what it means for us, how I can apply this to my life. Truth is truth is truth. But here's an example. When God says you should not have any gods before him, okay, he means you should not have any gods before him. He should be worshipped as number one in your life, okay? He's number one. No one and no thing should come before him. He is to be first and foremost, okay? So if you were to meditate and think on that scripture, and you try to understand it and chew on it, and then bring it home to our hearts, you're asking, okay, what does this mean for me? It doesn't mean, well, for some people, the God of the Bible needs to be number one, but for other people, a different God can be number one, okay? No. It doesn't mean, for some people, God can be number one, but for me, it's okay. He's not the most important thing as long as he's really important. Like, no. Those things change the truth. It's true for all of us that God needs to be number one. No one and no thing before him. But as I'm meditating on this passage of Scripture, and I seek to bring it home to my heart, I'm going to ask, what does it mean for me? And then I, it may mean for me that I've got some relationships in my life that I've made more important than God, and I need, to, I need to change that. It may mean that I've set up some idols that are getting priority over God, and I need to knock those idols down. And those idols would be different than Jake's idols, because I'm a different person. I'm applying God's word to my life. Um, maybe someone realizes as they're meditating that they've made work or school an idol. And when they examine themselves, they realize they care more about their grades or more about money than they do making sure God is first. So when we meditate, we seek to understand the truth and then hopefully realize as we're thinking about it and letting it into our heart that we need to change in some way. We need to change. We realize we haven't been thinking correctly or we've been falling short somehow. Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So God's word starts to sanctify us and make us more like Jesus. But it also says in Psalm 1, going back there, actually, I'm skipping ahead. I just want to say one more thing. Church, don't just read your Bible. Hopefully you've heard me on this. Slow down this week, this month. Meditate on the scripture as you read. Chew on it. Let it into your heart and let it change your life. And if you're like, I don't, I don't know where to slow down and meditate, Colossians, because Pastor Mike is preaching through it, and we'll be back there next week. So meditate on Colossians for a while. So, so far we talked about um, the negative things at the beginning, right? The things a righteous man does not do. We talked about some of the things he does do. He delights in Scripture, and he meditates on it all the time, which is crucial to our walk with Jesus. But it also says... He is like a tree planted by streams of water. 
or you could translate it for a better picture if you can kind of picture things in your head a little bit, um, channels of water, okay? So, first off, is it good that a tree is planted next to water? Yeah, right? A tree needs water. A tree without water won't be able to grow deep roots, will not be able to bear the fruit that it is supposed to. Water is good. It is the life that is feeding the tree. But it also says, like a tree planted by streams or channels of water. The Hebrew here means planted or transplanted. Okay, It's not random, it's intentional. It has been intentionally put here by these channels of water, um, where it can, in a spot where it can grow and can produce fruit and prosper. The allusion here is to a tree that was placed by channels of water that were created for the tree. Okay, they're created for the tree because those tending the tree want it to produce fruit. They have created the space for that to happen and given the tree what it needs, it has been planted there. Does that make sense? So where have you planted yourselves, my brothers and sisters? God has set up a beautiful river and channels of water for you to plant yourself next to. We have been given living water to feed on you have access to more Bibles than you need, more translations than you need, more commentaries than anyone else throughout history, more good sermons on the internet than anyone before. Okay, feed on God's word. But he also has channels of water you very much need that you may not be embracing. He has created the church as flawed as his people are to make it up to help feed you. If you look at the opposite of those first negatives we looked at, um, the righteous man doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of scoffers. There's an implication there, I think, and one that is definitely borne out by Scripture, that the righteous man will walk in the counsel of the righteous, that he will put himself where the righteous are, and that he will sit at the table with the righteous. The righteous man will not just surround himself with other righteous believers. He will do life with them. He will accept their wisdom and counsel, of course, always testing it against God's word. Church, we need this badly, okay, so badly. We are to bear each other's burdens, and we were created to be in community. The Bible was not written to you as an individual. It was written to God's people. It was written to the church, and we need each other. We need each other, and... Um, I'm going to tell you a story, so bear with me. It was a little painful and maybe a little bit gross. Um, but I believe the Lord took me through this for several reasons in which I will share, and then I'll, I'll bring it back to this passage and wrap things up. So at the beginning of this year, um, I noticed that my jaw and my ear were starting to hurt, and when I, when I tried to chew, it was a little bit painful, so I was trying to move my... I ended up chewing a lot on my left side. Um, and after a couple of weeks, I finally thought, okay, this is not going away. It's probably an ear infection because my ear hurts, you know, considerably. And I've had a lot of those in my life. So I, I did a telehealth visit, which is a cool way to be able to get medicine, you know, when you need it. And they gave me antibiotics, and I took them for a couple of weeks, and I didn't really get any better. And so I thought to myself, maybe it's not an ear infection. 
maybe it's TMJ because my job really hurts. So uh, I started doing a lot of jaw exercises, okay? And I thought, this is helping a little bit. Um, and then I believe on the 8th or the 9th of this month, um, my ear really started to hurt bad, and I basically couldn't chew food anymore. I was, I was eating tomato soup for lunch. And you, if you know me, if I'm eating soup, things are bad because <laughs> I'm not a soup person. Um, so I decided that I should go into the urgent care and have them look at it. So I went to urgent care, and uh, the doctor there was like, oh, you got some wax in there. I need to try to get that out. And they put this like water bottle in there and started squirting up my ear, which was incredibly painful. Um, and they got some wax out. And then she looked in my ear and she said, your ear looks really bad. You need to go see an ENT right away. I was like, great. So um, I got some medicine from them, some like eardrops and more antibiotics. And the next day, I got into the first ENT appointment I could find anywhere. And um, Laura, my lovely wife, decided she was going to take off work and go with me because she's been trying to get me to go to the ENT forever. Um, and uh, I was like, no, I'll be fine. But she's like, no, I just want to come. And I'm like, okay. So my ear was hurting really bad at this point. Um, I canceled life group because I didn't think that I could concentrate. My pain was so bad. And when we got in there, the doctor looked in my ear and said, oh, I can see why they thought your eardrum looked bad. Um, that's not your eardrum. And so uh, they couldn't see my eardrum because my ear was full of black wax. Like I said, kind of gross. Um, so they said, we need to get this out of here. And for the next 45 minutes or so, they proceeded to, as gently as they could, attempt to remove it. Um, within a few minutes, I was moaning, and within a few minutes beyond that, I was screaming. I screamed so loud that all of the doctors in the place came in to see what was happening, and they all took turns working on my ear. And uh, I, was, I was screaming, and I was nearing the point of passing out, because I just, I couldn't take it anymore. I'd never experienced anything like this in my life. I was sweating, and, and I heard them say something like, we think we're about 50% of the way there. And I was like, I can't. I can't do anymore. Like, it's too painful. And uh, finally, one of the doctors, I didn't realize there were three doctors in the room at this point, but there were. And they were like, we, we can't do anymore. And um, they told me that one of the reasons it was so painful is that this has been here for so long in your ear that it has grown into your ear, essentially. It has become a part of your ear. Like your skin and the wax have grown together. Um, and so we're having to basically pull apart some of the skin on your ear to get this out. Not to mention that there was a really bad infection. Um, so that was incredibly painful. And, and through that, the Lord taught me a number of things. You should always ask yourself in these painful moments, what is the Lord trying to teach me? And um, so I did. And, uh, and just so you know, right now my ear is feeling much better. I've been back to the doctor and I go back again in uh, a little over a week. Um, but when I was reflecting back, um, again, like I said, Laura has been telling me pretty much since we got married that I should go to the ENT and have my ear looked at. 
Over the years, numerous church members have encouraged me at various points to go to an ENT and get my ear looked at. Over the past six years, I've probably been to the urgent care three times for ear infections. And looking back, I remember they each told me, well, we can't really see much of your ear because of wax, but we're pretty sure there's an infection, so here's some antibiotics. Okay? Um, that wax had been in my ear, apparently, becoming a part of my ear, probably since before we were married. Um, so I should have gone a long time ago, but I did not. So why? And one reason the Lord revealed to me was pride. Okay, I thought I knew better than everyone else. I knew my ear. I grew up with ear infections, with ruptured eardrum, with an ear tube. Um, so I knew my ear in my past. I had dealt with it longer than anyone else. And so I thought that I knew better than anyone else. And that was wrong. Another reason, fear. Deep inside, I was afraid of the doctor actually finding something. I, I don't know what exactly, but I was afraid of dealing with it. Okay, I was afraid to deal with it. And then another reason, money. Uh, I was valuing money and other things over the health of my body that God has given me. And that, too, was wrong. Um, now, to be clear, I did not realize any of those things before just a couple of weeks ago. I thought and would have told you, it's just the way my ear is, and I trust the Lord to take care of me. I didn't even have a clear picture of my own heart on the matter. And that, my friends, is how sin works. And so it took crazy pain to finally drive me to the ENT, where I, I couldn't do anything else. And then the process itself to fix what was going on was one of the most physically traumatic moments of my life so far. And it would have been much, much better and easier if I had taken care of it early. Even though there might have been a little bit of pain and money and humility involved, it would have been so much better if I would have done it at the beginning. And I share this with you for two reasons. One, to publicly confess my sin of pride, fear, and selfishness and repent of it. And two, I share it for your benefit as I believe this is a great illustration or parable of sorts for all of us. Sin, in all sorts of forms, anger, bitterness, pride, lust, selfishness, following the wisdom of the world, insert your own sin, right? It's sneaky. And we can get off just a little bit in an area and let it in and allow it to make its home in us. And the longer we let it stay, the more attached it grows to us until it almost becomes a part of us. It feels that way. And then removing it at that point is extremely hard and extremely painful. And I believe that there are people here this morning, maybe many people, um, who have allowed this into their lives. Maybe that's you. Maybe you aren't even fully aware of it yet. I was not. Um, but you've, you've let pain, bitterness, anger, lust, whatever, like I said, whatever else, you've been putting off dealing with. You've let it in. And let me tell you, church, do not. It won't just go away. It will dig deeper and deeper and be harder and harder to remove. And it will keep you from being that righteous man. It will keep you from bearing fruit and prospering. 
If you let it in there long enough, you might not even know why you're not prospering, why you're withering, because you've got that, that sin hidden away, becoming a part of you. I have not been able to hear well out of my right ear for a really long time, and I've had tinnitus as long as I can remember. And I was just thinking today when we were singing up here after going to the doctor several times and doing all the things that they've asked me to do with my ear. This is the best I've heard probably since we've gotten married. Um, before that. Um, your unconfessed and undealt with sin will have effects in your life and will work itself out in all sorts of ways to keep you from spiritually prospering like you should. So, for some of you, maybe you're earlier in that, you know, you're afraid of dealing with something, trust me, do it now. Okay, some of you may have had something you've been holding on to for a long time and the thought of the pain of dealing with it now seems unbearable. And I will tell you, it may hurt, okay? It may hurt, but it will be for your good that the Lord deals with it. Don't be held down by sin in any form. Christ came to set you free. Do not live in slavery to your sin any longer. Do not let anger and bitterness keep its grip on you. And as one last encouragement to repent and confess and get free today, church, if you belong to Jesus, he loves you. He will not let you stay in that sin forever. At some point, he will do something to cause you to see it and turn, but oh man, it is, it will hurt a lot more the longer you wait. It was intense pain that drove me to go to the doctor, and I so wish I had listened to the warnings of my wife and my brothers and sisters well before it got to this point. So hear me today, do not wait. And as we get close to closing here, um, you might be sitting here this morning not having trusted in Christ. I don't know all of you in this room. Um, you may feel like you've tried to do the right things and you failed. You may believe you have, in fact, done the right things, but you're the one who decides what is right and wrong. And let me tell you, that's not true. God is the creator of you and of me and everything we see and don't see. He is the righteous ruler of all things and the one who declares what is right and what is wrong. He is a good God who judges justly. And that, that sounds a lot better than a bad ruler who judges unjustly, right? We don't want that. We don't want a bad or evil God. We want a good one, and, and praise God, that is who he is. We talked at Life Group the other night through chapter 3 of that book, and just it's amazing when you look at the Old Testament zoomed out how merciful and good and gracious God is to people that constantly rebel against him and break his commandments and try to set themselves up as their own God. And that's, that's who we are as people, right? It's bad news for us because we're not good. Humans are sinners. From way back in the day when Adam sinned, we have been rebels. We break God's good and just laws all the time. We lie, we cheat, we think we know better and live the way that we want instead of the way that God has required. And we are the evil ones who do wrong. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, not just a physical death, but eternity in hell. Because God is a good God who will punish sin. And listen, all of us Christians, we're just as incapable of walking in God's ways as you are. We aren't better than you. The righteousness we've talked about today is something we strive for, but also fail at. The measuring line is perfection. But here's what we do have. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus 
as God, the Son of God, and he came to the earth. He lived a perfect, sinless life in which he did not break any of God's laws, and then he took our punishment for sin upon himself. God poured out his wrath and judgment against sin on Jesus when he went to the cross, and then Jesus died and rose again, showing his power over death and sin, and he made a way for us to be restored to God. He did that for me and for you. And to those who receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He gives us his Holy Spirit that helps us walk in righteousness. We don't get salvation because we have done anything to earn it. We get salvation as a gift of God's grace and mercy. And that salvation from your sins can be yours today. Romans says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not just intellectual assent, but a belief, a real trust. You are trust in Jesus, and you're calling him Lord. Recognizing your life is his, and trusting him with it. Trusting in what he has done for you to pay for your sins. And so I encourage you this morning with the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin even though he knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable, favorable time I listened to you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, this morning is a favorable time. This morning is the day of salvation. I encourage you to trust in Christ this morning. Ask him to save you. You can do that now or in just a little bit as we pray, or find someone in our church who would love to help you. And so finally, a recap here as we close. Um, church one, just an encouragement. Stop looking to the world for wisdom. Do not put yourself in positions to be influenced by them. Do not join in with them. Take a good, hard look at where you're getting your wisdom and counsel from. I strongly believe that the worldly wisdom has been pouring into the church at large. And I'm concerned for our church as well. Number two, get into the word, church. Repent. If you have not been exalting the wisdom of God and his word, repent if it has not been your delight. Make it a top priority to get into God's word and meditate upon it. We must be in his word to hear him speak and know and follow him more and more. And I, I would also say, Repent if you've not spending been spending time in prayer. If your prayer life is dry or struggling, get into the Word. Because when, when you're in it and you're meditating on it, you know what? You're going to be led to pray because you're going to see more of who God is. You're going to see His holiness, and you're going to want to respond in worship. You're going to see His mercy, and you're going to want to respond with confession and repentance. You're going to see how gracious and giving God is, and you're going to want to respond with thankfulness. And you're going to see how loving and caring God is, and you're going to want to come to him with your requests. Being in God's word and meditating upon it will lead you to pray. So have you been in the word and in prayer? And if not, confess that to the Lord this morning. Repent. Third, open yourself up to hear from your brothers and sisters. Often we don't want to, and sometimes their words may feel abrasive to us. The question we need to ask ourselves is, why do their words hit us like they do? Is it because 
what they're saying is not in line with God's word, or is it because we are not in line with God's word? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. They are much better than kisses from the enemy. And lastly, again, do not allow sin to sit in your life. Ask the Lord to reveal to you your hidden sins. Don't be afraid to deal with that one that's been lingering. Don't let it become a part of you. Don't let pain, bitterness, or anger keep you from dealing with it. And finally, church, um, there's been a lot of talk about revival uh, going on right now over at Asbury University, and I'm not here to comment on any of that this morning. But I do want to say, don't we want revival in our church? Don't you want the Lord to revive you, to revive your brothers and sisters? I hope the answer is yes. And our hearts are so easily captured by other things. But Jesus is truly the greatest, and he is the one we want to capture our affections. Right, church? We do. May we cry out to the Lord this morning from Psalm 85 and say, will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you. Turn from your sin and run to Jesus and be like that tree planted by streams of water. So Lara's going to come up and we're going to sing together. Um, And for this first song especially, I encourage you, if you need to repent, to do so. Confess your sins to the Lord. Ask him to turn your heart to him. And I know that we have a concrete floor now, which is beautiful. Um, but it's probably less forgiving than our carpet was, okay? But I, I do encourage you, if you need to confess, if you need to repent of something before the Lord, I encourage you to get on your knees, or if you're like, I can't do that, then maybe come forward to one of these front rows as we sing and pray Pray to the Lord. The physical act of moving, whether we're getting on our knees or, or we're coming forward, helps move our hearts and just makes it more real for us. We were saying, oh, this is real. This is really me, Lord. I, I'm going to do this. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, show us your steadfast love this morning. Grant your salvation to anyone here who is not trusted in you. Call them from darkness to the light. May there be rejoicing in heaven this morning as a sinner repents and trusts in you. And for your people this morning, for your church, will you not revive us again, Lord, that we as a church may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again and turn us from our sin that we may find joy in you and not in other things? Will you not revive us again and set us free from besetting sins? Make us hungry for your word. Let us look to you for wisdom instead of the world. Make us a people of prayer, Lord. Make us a humble people that both speaks and receives your word from each other. Set us free from our sin and turn our hearts to you this morning. Amen.